0: Uh, We come to Matthew 4 this morning, we continue in our series going through the book of Matthew. Uh, I'm going to read the first 11 verses and we're looking at the temptation of Jesus. I'm reading from the NLT so your version may say things slightly differently. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scripture says, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you're the Son of God, jump, jump off, for the scripture says he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Now, some of my notes I've taken from a really good book. It's called the Victor Bible Commentary, uh, and I found it quite helpful in my study uh, of this. But what I wanted to say really at the beginning here is the background to this needs to be kind of earthed in Old Testament history. Uh, The reason for that is quite simple. Jesus was a Jew. He lived in Jewish culture. And the Old Testament is the context for that. I wonder if you thought for a moment about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You remember at the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptised with the Holy Spirit. How many of you have been baptised with the Spirit? A few of you. We need to continue to pray for that. Uh, We'll have to look at doing some sessions on that. Here's the challenge. Can you imagine you're baptized with the Spirit, you sense the Spirit is in you, and the very first thing he does is lead you to be tempted by the devil. Think about that for a moment. Oh, Think about it for a moment. You see, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us where we don't want to go. We kind of think, I want to do this, I want to do that. But the Holy Spirit can lead us where we don't want to go. And we misunderstand, as Christians, God's intent. You know, we we could um, pass by this and say, oh yeah, the devil tempted Jesus. But there is a real significance that the Holy Spirit took him to be tempted. We accept the good. We love the good when God does things, you know, when we get a pay rise, when we get more holiday, when there's a real blessing, we really love it. But we struggle, and I've noticed this in 30 plus years of ministry, that sometimes as Christians we struggle and we cannot reconcile God's blessing and love with hardship and suffering. And yet if I asked you to put your hand up if you've never suffered, anybody here never suffered? Never had any hardship? Isn't it interesting that it's something that we all go through, it's something that we cannot avoid, and yet here we have the Spirit of God taking Jesus to be tested or to be tempted by the devil. In rejecting hardship and suffering... Believers often unwittingly reject the power of God. Because you've got to remember, he went into the wilderness filled with the Spirit, but he came out of it filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think there is a connection between how we navigate the temptations that we face and the power that we live in as believers. So God's Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness Not to punish him, not to expose weakness, but to show that there are certain essential qualities in the life of Jesus and to show that he is genuine through that crucible of testing. You know what a crucible is? A crucible is something... Actually, the black country would have known it well. A crucible was something that was used to heat metals until they were molten metals and it allowed um, all the the, the rubbish to come to the top and to be taken off. And so it showed off that this is now a genuine piece of silver or gold because the crucible tests it in the fire. (coughs) Here's the important bit. In, In the Hebrew... In the Old Testament, the word for test carries three different meanings. And it's really important because our English word test is a little bit different. And so the meanings are this. The first one is this, to prove the quality of someone or something. Testing in the Old Testament was about proving the quality of someone or something. The second way it was used was to smelt or refine to suggest a process of purification. And then the final one is to demonstrate the existence of some quality. Now, why am I saying that? Because the testing isn't a negative thing, it's a positive thing. It's to demonstrate there is something good here. You know, quite often when you go to school, they will have these um, little musical shows. I know my daughter's school, they have these uh, musical things or instrumentals that you go to, Christmas, etc. And it's not to show weakness, it's to show off something good. You know, now the kids are all nervous when they go there, they practice tons. And, but actually the idea here is that it carries that there is an intent of proving genuine rather than something false. And Matthew's language in his gospel is very much that. He wants to demonstrate that this testing is to demonstrate something about Jesus that we all need to see. There were three temptations. Each temptation is a distinct avenue that Satan uses to attack. And each temptation in Jesus revealed an essential quality that was necessary for his ministry as the Messiah. Now in verse 4, verse 3, this one always catches me out. Verse um, 3, in chapter 4, the devil starts with, if you are the Son of God. And I remember years ago always reading it as a question on whether Jesus was the Son of God. That is actually not correct. In English, the word if generally suggests doubt. But in Greek, the way it is written, it assumes he's the son of God. But what they're saying, you're the son of God, so do this. Yeah? So he's not saying if you're the son of God. He's saying, okay, so you're the son of God. Now then, do this. Evidence your Godship by doing this. And that's where the attack on this comes. Satan's challenge to Jesus is to act in his character as God to solve the problems raised by a 40-day fast. He wants him to perform a miracle to to turn stone into bread. Now, what's really encouraging for us and important to see here is that Jesus doesn't respond in his God nature. He responds in his human nature. We often forget that when we see how Jesus dealt with it. How does he do it? He quotes the first passage when he's tempted. He says, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus saying, yeah, I'm God and you're goading me to use my God powers to do something. But I'm going to act in my humanity and tell you that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus announced his intention to Satan's challenges and he says I'm going to deal with this in my human nature and I'm not going to appeal to my godly nature which you are goading me into trying to do. Jesus responds to each test by appealing to scripture. Let me tell you, when you are tempted, when you are going through challenges, the word of God is your friend. And not only is it your friend, it is your power. I mean, think about it. Satan had to flee in the end because God's word was spoken and he could not refute it. But remember as well that the devil used scripture in a wrong way. In each instance, the quote is from Deuteronomy and what Jesus does is he draws a principle that he chooses to act on from each scripture. Now, we're reminded here That when Jesus used the scripture, so he says man does not live by bread alone. So Jesus refused to turn stone into bread because he says the principle here is that we are trusting in God and we're not doing our own thing. What that means for us is it's not just about the reading of the Bible, but it's about applying it. It's one thing Jesus saying, yeah, man doesn't live by bread alone, but I'm really hungry, so I'll turn that into those stones into bread. That would totally lose what the principle here is saying. We trust in God. God is our trust. And it's important for us to remember, it's not just about reading God's word, but it's about doing and applying what it says in there. Perhaps the most significant of all of these temptations is verse 8, when the devil says, All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor I will give to you. It's a culminating temptation. Now, when we look at these passages and we work through the temptations we'll see that the quality of Jesus is being displayed and that each quality is helping Jesus uh, in his messianic role that he has come to the earth. He is the Messiah, he's got to fulfill what God's asked him and he's being tested at the very beginning and it's showing forth the attributes that we will see later on in his life repeatedly displayed as the Son of God. The first temptation, Matthew 4, 1 to 4. The temptation comes from hunger. I don't know if you've ever fasted for 40 days, but I would guarantee to you that after 40 days of no food, as it says in the NLT here, you will be very hungry. And Satan challenged him to act in his essential nature as God to circumvent his human need, Jesus refused. He faced the test as a man and that test showed his humility. Think about it for a moment. Here we have someone who is not just a man but God. There is a term for that. The God-man is called the incarnation. I know that sounds like a big fancy word but incarnation means that God is in man and Jesus has these two natures and he's got the devil goading him on and yet he does not Use his power to benefit himself. Isn't that an amazing thing? In a world where we see um, big corporate companies abusing people, where we see politicians using their power for their own end, here we have someone who is God, and he says, no. I'm going to submit to what my father has for me, and I'm going to fulfill the mission. He must suffer. And despite suffering, he must choose to submit completely to the will of God. Isn't that a challenge? You know, sadly, in my career as a a Christian leader, I've seen quite a number of people who are believers in suffering walk away from Jesus. Or when they see somebody in their family suffering walk away from Jesus, I can no longer believe because of the suffering that they are in. Jesus, in refusing to act independently to relieve his own suffering, shows that he possesses the strength of character that was needed as the Messiah. He's not going to use that power for his own ends. The second temptation, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 to 7, uh, comes out of his humanity, but here Satan brings in a real doubt. He asks this question: Well, why would God treat His Son so shabbily? Why? Why did you come into the desert? Was it because you wanted to prove something? Perhaps there was a whisper of ambition. And so Satan says, well, you can test whether God is really with you. There is a little test you can do. All you have to do is go to the highest place on the temple and jump off, and God will save you. you, know, have you do you see that kind of a test? You know, we do it sometimes. We test God to say, well, is this really true what you've said? And we kind of say, well, Lord, if it's true, then I want you to do such and such. That's exactly what the devil is saying to Jesus. This is what you need to do. And and it will expel all doubt that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God. His angels will come. They will catch you. They will take a hold of you. Now, Jesus understood what the devil was trying to do. And what Jesus does is he quotes a scripture from Deuteronomy, and that scripture, the context of that scripture, is when the people of Israel are testing God. I find it quite amazing how Jesus just managed to do that. But he says to them, no. He says, no, guys, you must not test the Lord your God. You know, there's often a challenge for us, what's the difference between asking God a genuine question and testing God? One of the examples that I think that I see in the New Testament would be um, Zechariah. You know Zechariah was clearly told by God what was going to happen, and he said, "How can this be?" And he was struck dumb for about six months. You know, we need to be really careful. If God has said something, faith says we will believe it. Smith Wigglesworth, one of the greatest British healing evangelists of all time, he said very simply, if the Bible says it, that settles it for me because I will just believe it. And we live in a world that looks for evidence, but the evidence they look for is not spiritual evidence. And we need to be careful that we're not taking what God has promised and throwing it back in his face, which is what the devil is trying to go Jesus into doing here. Jesus commits himself to live a life of total trust. No matter how dark the circumstances become, Jesus needs this quality because he will face his own dark night of the soul and he needs to come through saying, I'm not going to test God in this. And you'll notice that when Jesus is in Gethsemane, he doesn't ask God to prove anything. He says, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done. I don't want to go through this. He says it very clearly. I don't want to go through all of this, but I trust you. You know, we've had people in this church who have trusted God through cancer. They're in glory now, but they trust it. Despite the pain, despite the difficulty, they said, God knows and therefore I can go through this. You know, we live in a really nice corner of the world where at the moment we're still really blessed. There are believers in China, believers in North Korea, believers in India, who don't have that same opportunity. For them to believe means end of life, means starvation, means losing their home, means being displaced. We've seen it with Azerbaijan and the Armenians who were there that they have essentially chased out through ethnic cleansing. And so we realize that It would be nice if everything was sunny all the time and good, but there is something about suffering that is powerful. I mean, one of these days, I'm going to do a sermon just about suffering because I think our perspective of suffering is totally wrong. We think suffering is all about the negative, but let me tell you, people who submit themselves to God's will in suffering, they come through with a character in God that nobody else possesses. I remember, sorry if I've shared this before, but I remember a good many years ago, one of my best friends, his wife had cancer. Um, She had two young children. They were um, maybe five, five to seven years old. She had cancer and she went through all the treatments. And at that time, chemo was a lot more rough. And 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 I remember her coming home in the car and just stopping and vomiting at the side of the road. And it really wasn't nice. And she had two young children and stuff. Uh, and yet she was also involved in ministry. And she would counsel people who had difficulties. And, and, and people would come with such trifles. They'd come with such trifles. Oh, you know, this and it. And she would sit there with this patience and with this love and with this attention. And she would pour it out when her own circumstances was far in excess what they were whinging about. I thought, how does she do that? How does she do that? And I'll tell you how she does it. Because suffering produces something in human nature and character that just changes the way we deal with people and other things. But it only works when we submit to God in it. It doesn't work when we're fighting every day against it. It doesn't work when we rail against God. It doesn't work when we're saying to God, you're not a really good God because otherwise you would take this away. (coughs) I'm amazed at how many people think that suffering should just be eradicated when actually Jesus himself, as the perfect son of God, we learn in Hebrews, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so, I mean, let's face it, it's coming. I mean, suffering comes to all of us, even you young guys, you know, who are in your teenage years. Let me tell you, once you get over 50, the knees start to creak and the back starts to creak. And and I was chatting to some ladies this morning and every morning you wake up with a new pain somewhere else. You know, suffering is part and parcel of our existence here and it is there to change How we act and deal with people. Smith Wigglesworth, by the way, he was quite rough with people. Um, When he was healing people, he was quite rough. Then he got kidney stones. And it took him seven years to pass each kidney stone. Seven years for all the kidney stones to come out. And they say after that event, he was much gentler with everybody else. Why? His suffering had made him realize you can't treat people like that. And so don't look at suffering as God saying, you know what, Um, I'm going to make you suffer because you're not good, you're not right with me, whatever. Suffering is there to produce character. The whole point is to make us like Jesus. And if Jesus was Jesus through suffering, then we are not going to be like him if we avoid that. It's one of the things that I like that God doesn't show me any further than five years ahead. Because if I saw all of it, I would run like blue blazes. (coughs) You know, Jesus would need his strength of character because he was going to be ridiculed and tormented by the Pharisees. He would need it because he was going to be doubted by people a week later when they all shouted, Hosanna, here is the son of David. He would need it because even every single last disciple that he invested three and a half years in ran away at his crucial time of need. And one of his most trusted friends denied him three times. Man, did he need it. He needed it because he is the only one who could say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? This is a quote from Psalm 22. We hear Jesus saying it on the cross, because on the cross, Jesus is the only one alive where God turned away from him because he took our sin upon him. But whatever we go through, Jesus is with us. Whatever suffering we face, whatever difficulty, we are not alone. We are those that have Jesus with us. We come to the third temptation, Matthew 4, 8-10. This temptation really relates to Jesus' mission. You know, as the Messiah, he is going to be the ultimate ruler. He is come to be the ruler. And here Satan says, I will give you all of these kingdoms and all their splendor. Now, I don't think Jesus was tempted... By the kingdoms and their splendor, I think that the temptation is of the good that he could do if he ruled all the kingdoms. Think about all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah's rule and it says lifetimes are extended, there's prosperity and peace. It says that even the wolf and the lamb or the lion and the lamb lie down together. Imagine the good that Jesus could do if at that point he started to rule the world. Think about it. If Jesus had taken uh, uh, Satan up on his offer and he was ruling From 2,000 years ago till now, think about all the people who have lived in pain, who have died, who have been mistreated over all the centuries. Wouldn't it have been great if Jesus had been the ruler for the last 2,000 years? That, I think, was the temptation. How much good Jesus could do. And all of this, according to Satan, without the cross. Humanity would be blessed and the saviour would achieve his destiny without pain. So why not accept Satan's offer? Really simple. God's purpose could only be served if the path led to the cross. For without the cross, without the suffering, there is no glory. Redemption must come before renewal. However good Satan may have thought his offer was, Jesus the Messiah was fully committed to do the will of God. And in that, God's will alone. And so here Jesus went through three temptations and each temptation demonstrated that he had everything that it takes to be the Messiah, to be the king. You know, God will test us before he releases us in some ministry or some area. He will test us. The scripture says that if we're faithful in the little things, then God will give us bigger things. But if we're not faithful in the little things, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, when I was in church, this was in Coventry, uh, spent a lot of time growing up in Coventry. My first job in the church was... Um, putting out the chairs, handing out the books, and cleaning the toilets. You've got to be faithful in the little things. Sometimes in the world that we live in, people try to shortcut. I remember, I mean, this is hilarious. Well, it's hilarious for me, but uh, I remember a number of years ago when the government had this plan to retire people early. Do you remember when a whole bunch of people were retired immediately? A year later, they undid that because they realized that the people they retired had all the experience that these other folks didn't have. You can't shortcut it. There is experience in life. There are things and God tests us to see how will we deal with a ministry that he gives us. Sadly, in my life, I've seen some very, very, you know, I've known guys who've carried more anointing in their little finger than I have in my whole body, but they didn't pass the test. And they're nowhere now. They're not doing anything for Jesus. Because Jesus wants to make sure that we have the qualities that we need. You know, the application to the temptation should give us encouragement. Jesus did not overcome the temptation because he was God. He dealt with it as a human being relying on the Holy Spirit and trusting in his Father. And if that is how Jesus did it, that's how we can do it. It means that we can overcome temptation, we can overcome difficulty because we are filled with the Spirit of God and because we trust that God's plans are there for our good and ultimately his good. Like Jesus, we can choose to live by the principles established in God's Word. We can learn from his experience. We can see the lessons and how he overcame. We can spend time meditating in this passage and applying it to us and how we deal with it within our humanity. And yet we, we need to make the same choices that Jesus made. We need to nurture the qualities that he's so beautifully displayed. You see, like Jesus, we're susceptible to pressures. Physical pressure, spiritual pressure, the social universe we live in, I feel for our young people. Um, uh, last week, uh, I went on Snapchat. Man, is that a nightmare. I don't know if you've ever... Yeah, anybody here on Snapchat who's a, an adult, who's over 20? No, well, let me... Oh, yeah. Good Grief. You put that on your phone, and unless you turn the notifications off, it's like a machine gun going off. You know, the pressures socially, through social media apps, through all those things, they are really high, and we need to look at whose plan we're going to follow. We also have needs. We have a need to survive and for security. We have a need to be recognized and to be significant. We all want a significant life. And even though these needs are strong, we need to say that we're going to trust in Jesus. And we need to recognize that every time we hit these things, that it's a temptation. It's a temptation. It's come to test us. And and where it is really hard is where that temptation is something we really want. You know, there are things in life that we come across and say, oh, I really want this. And the temptation is really, really powerful. And yet here Jesus was able to say, I don't care how powerful the temptation, I don't care how desirable this temptation is, if it is not part of my Father's plan, I want nothing to do with it. Now I say that from two sides. Let me tell you, uh, James wrote that many people in an effort to get rich have pierced themselves with many griefs. And there is a principle there that sometimes we try to grab a hold of temptations and we don't realize that what we are unleashing in our lives is just more pain and more difficulty. I've seen that in people who've married the wrong person. I've seen that for people who've made a wrong decision in terms of where they live or the job they do. Why? Because they so wanted it and when they got it, it wasn't what they thought. That not that temptation? How many of you have ever, you've thought, wow, this product looks really good and and you see it and everything, you buy it, you get home and you think, oh. Buyer's remorse, they call it. And you know, temptation is filled with buyer's remorse. That we thought this thing was good, but it's not good. We thought it would bring happiness, but it doesn't. Because the reality is it's all founded and grounded in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this morning, no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how challenging things come that you face, no matter how great the temptation, never ever walk off the path of following Jesus. It will only lead to pain. And if we trust in Jesus, he will give us the strength to get through it and what we will find is that our character becomes stronger and stronger. I passionately believe that one of the most powerful things in fasting is just the really simple process of denying ourselves. We do. We need to deny ourselves. I mean, we're coming up to Christmas where we don't deny ourselves anything. So, but we need to have times now where we say no. You know, fasting a meal or fasting something is really good because it builds your character and your ability to say no. Let's pray.